0: Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, Sojourn, on this beautiful fall day. As Andrea said at the beginning, uh, it doesn't quite feel like Portland normally does this time of year being that I'm a transplant here, I'm actually not complaining about it, but uh, enjoy this beautiful weather and this day that the Lord has given us. Uh, this weekend we're actually starting a brand new series uh, called Transforming Grace through the letter of 2 Peter. Uh, you might remember back in the spring we went through 1 Peter, so uh, that should be pretty familiar to you and kind of who he is in the background and the context. And uh, this weekend we're starting 2 Peter um, and this is actually make the ninth book of the Bible that we work through as a church. Uh, for a young church, that's actually pretty remarkable. Uh, typically, we work through large chunks or entire books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, many of you weren't here for uh, many of those nine books, and so we may very likely revisit them at some point. Uh, but we, we typically go Old Testament New Testament. So as you know, we just finished Habakkuk, and now we're jumping back into the New Testament. And uh, we, we, we kind of have a preaching schedule out for the next year. Uh, legendary NFL coach Vince Lombardi. Who, who knows who Vince Lombardi is? Okay, all the sports fans in here, those who are like a sports fan, heard are the Lombardi Trophy, the trophy they give at the uh, Super Bowl, okay? So Vince Lombardi, very famous NFL coach, would start every season with the same speech. With a football in hand, this highly respected coach would walk to the front of the room with all of his players in front of him. He would take a moment to gaze over the players, looking out at them. He would hold out the football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Like the professional athletes who were paid to play football didn't know what a football was. After describing the importance of the football, I mean, I can imagine sitting there as a player thinking, like, okay, we, we know this. He would then lead his team outside. He would show them the field, and he would explain to them with the out-of-bounds line. Say, like, this is where it's out. You've got to keep the ball in these lines here or force the other team out. And then he would show them the end zone and say, this football is intended to go past this line into the end zone. And this is how we score points and win games. Lombardi knew the importance of reminding his players about the fundamentals, even season athletes. So every season, you know, imagine guys who played for multiple years, it would start the same way. And you're thinking like, I'm rolling my eyes here. Like you played in high school you play since you were a kid. You've been in college, you're a professional. But he wanted to remind them of the fundamentals. Never move beyond the fundamentals. You never graduate. And so Peter's going to do the same thing for us in this second level. He's going to remind us as Christ followers of the fundamentals of the faith. Kind of going back to the basics. Which I think for us is uh, really the idea is that we don't ever graduate beyond the basics. We never get to this higher level and say, well, I don't, I don't need these things anymore. And so he's going to go back and remind us of this. In this opening message, we're going to be looking at our, remembering our foundation and our calling of our faith. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, and we'll get there in just a couple minutes. If you're not familiar with where that is, go out in the back, find Revelation, flip over a few pages, a few books, and you will find uh, 2 Peter. Of course, the words will be behind me on the screen as well. So let me pray for us, and then we will actually get into this text. God, we come to you this morning. I ask that you settle our hearts and our minds. God, that we can leave the worries of this world behind us as we enter into this sacred time and space in this week. God, may we leave the worries at the door, that you would remove them from our minds. God, I sense that that there's some heaviness uh, in the room this morning. That that people come in with just some some burdens, some heartaches. And God, that during this time that they can leave those and that they can commune with you. And God, that your word would speak to us this morning. God, that you would remove me. God, that, that, that you would uh, give me the words to say, if they're in my manuscript grade, if they're not, I would leave them on the side. And God, that we would leave here knowing that we have an experience with you as you spoke to us from your word. It's in your name, by your power we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, right, first or second Peter, rather, chapter one, verse one. So Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time here. I'm not gonna give us a whole lot of background uh, in part because we already studied 1 Peter and we gave a lot of background on on Peter other to say that Peter is the author and he writes to us as a servant and as an apostle of Jesus. So he's kind of saying like, yes, I'm I'm an apostle. So I kind of have this uh, level of authority. To, to, to deliver this word, but I'm also coming as a servant, as one who is humble, um, and, and as a, a fellow follower of Jesus. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly who his original audience is here, uh, other than he's, he's addressing it to a church, and he clearly says this is to a people who have received a faith equal to that of the apostles. In other words, a faith that was just as precious as that that Peter himself had received, of the salvation of Jesus that he had given to his earliest and closest followers. It's a reminder here is that, that any of us who have faith in Jesus, that it's an, it's a reminder and evidence of God's grace. That we went, it's not that we went out and did something ourselves, that we worked hard enough, that we discovered this, this, this formula that gave us salvation, but that it was a work of God in every single person, whether you're an apostle, whether you're not an apostle. That's evidence and reminder of God's grace in their lives. And so this means there's no second class citizens in the kingdom and family of God. And so just because I have the title pastor next to my name doesn't elevate me any more than it, anyone else in this room. That we all come as, as in a sense, beggars, as servants to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have just as much right standing as the Apostle Paul, as Martin Luther, as Billy Graham. Like just because, you know, those are figures that we know doesn't give them any more understanding in in the kingdom of God than than us. Because it's all based on who? Jesus and his grace and his work in the world. David Helms said, Our ability to stand before God someday as rescued and reclaimed persons depends entirely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He alone has flown through this world without falling. He alone can and did make atonement for sin. Thus, he alone can bring us home. So he kind of starts out saying, hey, this is, this is where you are. Let's kind of equal the level of uh, level the playing field here. And then verse 2, Peter gives us his initial blessing. So he's addressing this church. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace is this term that we, we, we hear a lot. At least it's sojourn. I, I would like to think that we hear this term a lot. But sometimes we can kind of flippantly like throw it around. But it's this resource that God gives to undeserving sinners, okay? That would be all of us. For both the conversion, so our initial coming to Christ, and then for our sanctification, so for for looking more and more like Christ. It's all in grace. And then it says, um, "May grace and peace. Peace is this blissful, joy, contentment that we have as a result of being made right with him. Kind of looked at that a little bit in our last series with Habakkuk. Right, that even though we're going through chaos and the struggles of life, that we can still have this peace that comes from God, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that is countercultural to the way of the world around us. And so together, grace and peace, they describe the blessed condition of all Christ's followers. And so if you are in Christ this morning, my brothers and sisters, then you have grace and you have peace of being made right with God. Like let's just stop there for a minute. Like you've been made right with God. Because of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Because of his grace, and as a result, that should also give you this peace that those in the world do not have. And that now we're growing more and more into Christ's image. And so that's really what we're going to look at quite heavily um, in this series, is this transforming grace that should be transforming us. That each day, each week, each month, each year that we follow Christ, we should look more and more like Christ because of his grace. Grace in our lives. Um, that was the passage we read at the beginning. Romans 5, 1-5. If you didn't pay attention to that, go back and read that. Write that down in, on your phone or in notes. Romans 5, 1-5. Go back and read that. That's why we read it at the beginning because it's, it's pointing us to what we're being reminded of. That our, 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 in our blessed condition, however, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. His desire, Peter's desire for us, is that our grace and peace be multiplied in the lives of his readers. Well, How? We already told us, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Peter implies that this condition that we are given through Jesus, that through his grace and peace, it's brought about to fruition in its fullest sense only in the gospel. Because it's Jesus alone who should be the object of the knowledge of a Christian. In other words, I'm desiring to, get to know him more and more. Not just to head knowledge, but to intimately know him. Right? I think about those of you who are married in here or newly married in here. Right. We've got a couple who just started this journey. And hopefully in a year, they think their year anniversary, or I guess in, in 10 months or two months in, congratulations, you made it this far. <laughs> in our two years or five years, we can go, man, we know each other more intimately than we did when we first started this journey. Right? And that's kind of what, what, what Peter's saying about the object of the Christian, which are in Christ, shouldn't be Christ. Right? We should desire to Christ more and more in our lives. Peter uses two different Greek words that are both translated as knowledge in English. So I'm going to try to do my best to differentiate those. If it's confusing this week, hopefully in the coming weeks or on Wednesday night, we can unpack that a little bit further. But I think it's worth noting here. Because when you see knowledge, then you see another verse, he he may be using actually a different word in Greek. So in verses 2 and 3, he's referencing what's considered a full knowledge. The most intimate kind of knowledge that there is possible. And then in verses 5 and 6, you need to pay attention when when we get to those verses, he's referencing a knowledge is like a good sense of understanding a practical wisdom so think of it this way when i plug my destination into my gps uh so i took two of my boys this weekend to astoria and i knew kind of how to get to astoria but i wasn't sure necessarily so i plug it into my gps i expect to be given clear and accurate directions based on someone's real knowledge Like someone who actually had the knowledge how you get to Astoria. And now with with internet, Wi-Fi and all that, like we get real live time, right? Like there's an accident, there's a road closure, and and we have these things. Although there may be several routes, right? I think there's two main ones to Astoria, they are all based on objective realities. And that this will actually get you to your destination. And so the only chance I have to reach my destination is to get real knowledge that is based on what's true and what's right. It can't be someone who just grabbed the map and said, well, and you're here you do this, right? And it's just taking you right to the middle of a river or something, right? Like you can't drive there that way. And so, if it's true that we need real, actual knowledge to get to our weekend destination using our GPS, how much weightier is it that we have accurate knowledge about the matters of life and death and eternity? When I think about this idea of, of evangelism, we could, we could. Sit here and parse out all day long methods and what's right, how do you do it, is it lifestyle, is it through preaching, and, and all those things. But I think that this points back to this reality that every single person you know, you should care about them enough and love them enough that you'd want them to have accurate knowledge to know how to make a and make an informed decision based on actual knowledge. This This is what God's Word tells us, and I believe this with all of my heart. I know this is true. And it's because of that, I want you to have this knowledge as well. You're familiar with the expression, there's nothing new under the sun. I feel that every single week as I prepare messages. <laughs> um, and it's funny, when you when you start preparing, right, and you start with God's word and let God speak to you, and then eventually you add in some other sources and commentaries and things, and like, I'll be using you know three or four different ones, and I'm like, they're all saying literally the same thing, or they're all quoting the same guy. I'm like, I should just skip all these guys and get this guy's, this guy's commentary because they're all obviously using his to get to the same thing. So there's nothing new under the sun. And that includes the realm of spiritual truth. You know, this is very common in our, our day and age, our generation to hear this phrase. It's just my truth. Speaking my truth. As I was looking at this. I was like, I don't need your truth. You don't need my truth. We collectively need the truth. And there's only one truth. And so that's what Peter's going to remind us of in this letter. He's going to remind us of the truth of the gospel that has been delivered to us. Now, I'm not getting to this too much today, but fast forward to chapter 2. He's actually addressing, um there's false prophets and teachers that have, have come in their midst. And so people are starting to be swayed, right? And I think about, I mean, today we have more access to prophets and teachers and all these things, right? There's there's, there's churches here in our city, messages online, right? And part of my job is to help them. Uh, Protect the flock, guard the flock. And so Peter's coming and reminding the church, he's saying, Look, there's false prophets, there's false teachers, they're going to lead you astray. You need to go back to the foundation. We're reminded of the foundation of the truth. Not your truth, but the truth. Now, Peter's going to bring us this big idea of this letter in verses three through four. So let's pick up there. He says, His divine power That Christ has provided everything required for life and godliness. Next slide, please. So just so you guys know, that was my introduction. Now we're getting into our first point here. (laughs) Christ has provided everything required for life and godliness. Look back at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things. All things. That pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So this divine power, it's, it's Christ, right? It's, it's his power. But it says he has granted that. If you grant something to somebody, right, you're, you're giving it to them. So he's given it to um, his followers when it comes to the matters of life and godliness. So the question is not, once again, if you are in Christ, if you identify yourself with Christ, you've given your life to Christ and you submit your life to him. The question is not, do you have the power? There's, there's tribes out there that will focus on this, right? You've got to do some special extra thing and a second baptism. All they're like, no, do you have the power is not the question. Because he's already told us we have the power. We've been granted the power. The question is, do you desire Godliness? Do you actually desire to look more and more like our Savior? Because you've already been granted the power through the knowledge that you have of God. And God ultimately desires for his children to look like his son, Jesus Christ. So we're all to be looking more and more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul actually tells us that we were marked the people before the beginning of time. Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So before the beginning of time, that we were marked Right? we were marked. Have you ever felt like you were marked in your life? This can be good and bad. There's been circle, certain circles I've been in, or I'm like, I'm a marked guy, meaning I'm on, I'm on the list that they don't care, they don't want to invest in me, right? But in this sense, God does want to invest. In you. Like He said, "You he were marked people before the beginning of time." We also know that we were created in the image of God. If you read the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, verse 27. But then in Genesis three, what happened? The fall. Sin enters the world. We messed up that image. And from that point on, the rest of the Bible is a story of God's activity in Christ to rescue and recover his image and restore the purpose he intended for mankind. Isn't that a beautiful story? Right? I think sometimes we just haven't actually read God's word that he gave us to be reminded and remember like, Man, things started out really, really good, like better than we could even imagine. And then they went really, really bad. And then the rest of this story, the rest of this book is God's story of coming to rescue us, to deliver us from ourselves and from our sin and our shame. That is that is good news. And that's why Peter says that Christ has given us everything that we need, everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. In other words, Jesus has provided everything we need to flesh out or to work out his life and everyday living as reflect his image. He's given us the tools. He's given us the ways to do this. Jim Shattuck says, when the power of God through Christ is at play in the Christian life, the believer has absolutely everything he or she needs to be true to the calling of spiritual maturity and growth in Christ's likeness. Hold on to that, because we'll unpack that a little bit further in verses five through 11. Number two, the promise of being like Christ. Verse four, says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Three quick references I'm going to give you to his promises, but we won't get to them until we get to chapter three. But this is actually going to be a relatively short series, so in just a matter of weeks. But chapter three, verse four, it says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Chapter 3, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we have the promise of salvation, we have that now. Right? We don't have to wait for salvation. We, we can tell people about Jesus, how they can be saved. We don't say, but you have to wait. So we have that now, but we wait for the fulfillment of it, for the completion of it, for the perfection of it. Think about our world. Our world is full of empty promises. You may have experienced an empty promise this weekend, right? Uh, uh, I'm a Carolina Panthers fan since I'm originally from the East Coast and from North Carolina. Like, we signed Baker Mayfield and we had the promise of a, a better season. Well, here we are. We've won one game. We fired our coach, and it's like we're going through this crisis again, right? It's an empty promise. I recently watched uh, the documentary Tinder Swindler. Anybody watch that documentary? No, I'm only the shallow one here. Well, it tells the story of this guy who used the dating app Tinder, which I've never had. I'm a happily married man for 15 years, but he used it to connect with women to con them out of money. And he would basically make up this scenario that he pretended he had a bunch of money, which he did because he got it from other women that he conned. But then he would get to a scenario where, hey, I've been kidnapped for this. I can't give you all the details. Can you borrow me? This is funny. And he conned women out of $10 million. He lived this life for quite a while. That's an empty promise to these women, right? That's an extreme example. So while life is full of empty promises, there's one promise we can bank on. We can bank on the promise of the word of God. But you have to read it to know what the promises are that's in here every word proves to be true now some of it remember we looked a couple weeks ago at romans 8 some of it is the future fulfillment of it and that's going to take a while we may not even see it in our lifetime but then we can bank on every single word that his promises stand true. now the second part of verse 4 he tells us he says we will become partakers of the divine nature as christ renews and restores the image of God and believers through our already but not yet salvation. So we'll become partakers of the divine nature. Do you feel like your nature is divine? No. Right? That doesn't, like, we, I think we get the, like, sinful nature. Right? That part I get. Even this morning as we're setting up in a moment of frustration, I kind of said, my flesh, that's the language I'll use, my flesh wants to say this. Right? It's, it wasn't of my divine nature. It was of my sinful nature. But it says that we will become partakers of the divine nature. And as this happens, everything about you changes. So once again, let's start. Just think in your mind. Take a moment. Think about your moment if you are in Christ when you gave your life to Christ. Everything should daily, weekly, monthly, yearly change. So as you reflect back, rewind the tape. Now, it may have been only a couple months. may have been a number of years. But you rewind the tape that... Everything about you should be, maybe it's slowly and gradually, so it's drastically changing what you do, how you do it, how we make decisions. Everything changes because now we have a different nature. Now we have a nature that is divine, which should change our desires. Now, we we know that we still struggle with that sinful nature, right? We still know that we struggle with that sinful uh, desires as well. And so sometimes it feels like there's this war and this conflict that's happening, right? It's called spiritual warfare that will take place, but that we should have these desires and we should sense it. I don't desire the things that I used to desire. At least I desire them as strongly as I used to. Because I have this divine nature, I have the Holy Spirit indwelling. Then how do we live into that promise of becoming more like Christ? First, by growing in our knowledge. Actually knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him by becoming more like jesus once again he's going to unpack that a little bit in verses 5 through 11 you might ask well how do i do that practically okay you're telling me like, grow in christ <laughs> go and be blessed go do this how do i practically do that <clears throat> so let me say it this way if you're not a christian it simply begins by placing your faith in him that is the starting line that's the starting point we'll just kind of pause at that for right now if you're not in christ If you are a Christian, it is growing in the spiritual practices and the way of Jesus. In other words, doing the things that Jesus did. Think of it this way. You don't look more like Jesus or become more like Jesus by not doing the things that he did. Okay, I'll say that again. You don't look more like Jesus or become like Jesus by not doing the things that he did. I think sometimes I'll I'll have a conversation with someone and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm doing all these things. I'm just struggling with my, my faith, my walk with the Lord, and this, and I'm like, it's like, let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the foundation. What are your spiritual practices? What are your spiritual disciplines? I know we don't like that word, but what are your spiritual disciplines? And it's like, you talking about like prayer and stuff? If I read the Bible, you know, it's like, I can't do this. And I'm like, I can tell you why you're like, you're not gonna look more like Jesus by not doing the things that Jesus did. And somehow we think we can ignore all these spiritual practices of a Christ follower that's been there historically, Orthodox Christianity, and that we can still become like Jesus. It's like, I'm going to do completely opposite or my own way, kind of tack Jesus on 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 the side here, right? Like, if you ever—don't raise your hand if you ever did this. If you ever had, like, you were dating someone, you were in a serious relationship, did you ever have, like, a side— a side relationship? That's really bad. Don't do that. If you're married in here, please talk to me afterwards. We're going to have a um, intense counseling session. But we all know those stories, right? It's like, you're not going to get closer to this person, this person, by adding this little side thing, right? But we somehow think, I can live my life however I want. I can kind of tack Jesus on when he's convenient, and maybe I'll pray occasionally when there's a crisis or when I'm upset with God and like, what are you doing? Yet we think, why don't I look more like Christ? Why am I not closer to Christ, we don't become more like Jesus by not doing the things that he did. Now, brief note, you might be hearing my words, whether on the screen or later in a podcast or here, and you might think, I'm a a new or younger follower of Christ. And you might be thinking, I don't know where to start, or you're overwhelming me by everything that you're saying right now. This is why we are here. So let me kind of pause there and say, we are a church. How about this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus? So we are here to help you. Because none of us us get it. None of us graduate beyond it. It doesn't happen overnight. But it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's part of what we call discipleship or apprenticing to the way of Jesus. So don't be overwhelmed by it. But that's why we do life in community. We say that we want to help one another. We want to help each other get to that place while while we're reminded of these things. When I think about looking more like Jesus, getting close to Jesus, I think about going to Matt's barbecue. Anyone ever been to Matt's barbecue? It's like it's the best barbecue you can get in the city. It's Texas style, which I'll give them a break because it's, it's you know it's not North kind. But the aroma—if you ever go to a barbecue restaurant, like a really good barbecue restaurant—they're cooking with wood. Like if they don't have wood, don't go there. But they're cooking with real wood. The aroma of the barbecue—you leave and you smell like what? <laughs> barbecue, pit, smoke, because the aroma has washed over your body because you got really close to it. When, you, when you're with Jesus, and you're spending time with Jesus, and you're doing the practices of Jesus, you will resemble Jesus. The aroma of Jesus will be on you to the point that when you are going about your daily life, people will sense. They may not know how to pinpoint it. You know, if, if, if you're a fellow Christian, a lot of times we go, man, that person has spent time with Jesus this week. Like, I can tell. And if it's someone who's, who's not following Christ, then they might just say, man, there's something different about the person. There's just like this sense of, of peace or something that's with them. Because the aroma of Christ will just be all over you. Now, what Peter's getting at here is our really this idea of sanctification. like That's a big theological word as we grow more and more like Christ. Now, if you run into someone that you haven't seen for a long time, let's just say today, it's a beautiful day, you're out in the park and you run into somebody, you're like, hey, it's you know, Michael from high school, like man, how you been? It's 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 been quite a while, you know. I haven't I haven't seen you. And they tell you that you haven't changed one bit, you would take that as a compliment, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, man, I'm still looking good. <laughs> now, just for the record, that never happens to me. Everybody's like, Man, you're really age. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you look really old. You look like people always, I'm like, no, oh, this never happens to me. But if that happens to you, then you're like, yeah, i take it it's a compliment. But if someone were to say that about your spiritual life, about your walk with Christ, about you following Jesus, that would be a serious problem. Imagine following Jesus, being a professed Christian, let's just say five years. And Christ looks at you and says, you're exactly the same you were five years ago. Right? We see this throughout scripture. We have this idea of milk and meat and what can handle maturing in Christ. Like, yes, you're you're standing as far as salvation goes. Like, yes, it's the same because it's all what? Built on Jesus. But as far as our maturing in Christ, it says you haven't changed one thing. Because our knowledge and faith in Christ is to lead us to growth in Christ's likeness. But it starts with doing the things that Christ did. Now, the section of verses 5 to 11. For the record, I really wanted to make these two messages, and I chose to make it one, so bear with me this week. Um, the section of verses 5-11 is a wake-up call for us to grow in Christ's likeness And Peter's going to make this argument further, that we are to be in a constant state of growing and looking more and more like Jesus. And so number three, be progressing in your faith. It says, verse 5, For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So Peter issues this appeal to his readers to be progressing in their faith. Why? Because the believer's initial faith is merely the foundation on which God intends to build a full orb of calling into his image. We kind of find this beautiful tension of scripture here, and I want you to hear this, of God's divine sovereignty, kind of God's overall things, and then human responsibility. Because our previous verses, three through four, he undeniably declares that our calling unto salvation is the work of God alone. Amen? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, leaving nothing to the table that we are all guests, that Jesus has paid it all. Amen. But here in verses 5 through 7, we kind of see this striking contrast about the liability and the responsibility that we have in doing something with our calling, with our salvation, that that once we're in Christ. So we see this divine tension, as I call it. Now here in, in kind of this mystery, here's my pastoral word to you on the mysteries of Scripture. And you may not like it. It's okay to leave the mysteries of Scripture as mysteries. Find rest in that tension. I'm not saying we don't pursue God's Word, that we don't study it, that we don't seek clarity. What did you mean on this? But we're talking about God here. And there are things that I don't think, you know, there's things that we've debated throughout the centuries. But there's aspects of mysteries of Scripture that I don't know that God's going to reveal that to us in, in, in complete clarity that we would want this side of heaven. So I think it's okay to let some of those mysteries remain mysteries, and we can kind of live in this tension. And Peter's appeal, he's pointing to this reality, and we, I've seen this happen a lot, been in church for a very long time, that once someone gives their life to Christ, they can quickly turn into passivity and apathy. We see this in churches all over today. I've already kind of referenced this a little bit, but those who add Christianity into one aspect of their life, among a list of others, instead of making it their life mission and calling. I think one thing that we do a disservice to in kind of the church, and I would even say probably here at Sojourn Church, so we really do people a disservice because we focus so much on the initial start of faith and, and salvation, and giving all their life to Christ. And then it's like, man, you've made it through the finish line, is almost how we treat it, right? You've finished the 5K, or whatever, you've run the right like you've made it, woo, you're saved. And then, and then we go through baptism, which we should, right? It's a biblical thing. And then, it, and then we kind of drop the ball a lot of times there, instead of focusing on this idea that yes, you've been called to Christ, but you've also been called to this family called the church, right? I know people say, "Man, you're a pastor, what I say," but they like, "I see it in Scripture. Like, we are called he's given us one another, that we are helping each other grow in these ways that we can look more and more like Christ." So, if you get a text from me or you get a call from me, it might just be me. I'm just checking up on your studies because I love you and I care for you. And I may just want to go hang out. And so Peter's appeal, he's appealing to the church, It should be growing, It should be looking more like Christ. He gives us seven certain attributes that are necessary for the believer's calling to maturity, and Peter wants to add to these generously and sacrificially to your faith. And so if you're not a Christian, again, how do you begin your faith? Or how do you begin your Christian life, rather? By faith. And then Christ will start to produce these qualities in you. And we might bristle at this word effort because we focus on all the work of Christ. Because we're not saved by our effort. It is by God's grace. But think of it this way. God's grace makes it where our efforts are not necessary. God's grace makes our efforts possible. So our effort's not necessary for salvation, but it makes our efforts necessary in growing in these ways. So here's these attributes. I'm going to listen real quickly, kind of speed up here. Virtue or goodness, depending on the translation of scripture you're looking at. Nobody's born good or virtuous, but believers in Christ can live out his goodness by his grace. Give us knowledge, wisdom, and discernment that every Christian needs to live a virtuous life. Self-control. Control of one's passions is only possible as one submits to the control of the indwelling Christ. Steadfastness or endurance. They would need this for the coming persecution in their case. And coming for the trials and hardships in our case. Godliness. Piety and devotion to God that is manifested in right feeling and behavior toward him. Brotherly affection. An affection to share between brothers and sisters in Christ. Manifested in kindness, generosity, and courtesy. Love. The pinnacle of the attributes is the agape love that God demonstrated to us and that we in turn demonstrate to others. So he's given us these seven attributes saying brothers, sisters, this is what you are to be growing in. This is as you grow growing your knowledge of Christ, that God enables you to, to, to experience these, to live these out. And so how do we apply these to our lives? The first is a reminder. That this list is driven by the divine nature. That's how. It's not of our, I think sometimes we think, man, how do I do that? Because we're thinking in our sinful flesh nature. No, this is the divine nature that, that creates these in us and stirs these in us. Second is we need to nurture these qualities in our life through the power given to us in Christ. We have been given power. and We have been given tools. and We've been given ways to nurture these. Third is a caution. Don't be legalistic and limiting with this list. We shouldn't limit the measure of our Christ likeness or our growth to these seven qualities in one. And so the point is that authentic faith in Christ ought to ever be progressing. That it ought to be growing and manifesting in attributes like these that Peter has provided to us. So the question is not, do you have access to them? If you are a Christian, again, you have full and complete access. Right? It's like you have been adopted into God's family through Christ. And now as an adopted son and daughter, you have complete access to all of these. So the question then is, are you growing in them? Because there's never a moment in the life of a Christian when you should not be growing. Up. I watched a, uh, another documentary. I watched a lot of documentaries, it seems. Uh, recently called On the Redeemed Team. Does anyone watch this documentary? Okay, I'm the only one. Well, okay, a couple people in here. So this is uh, the, the 2008 Olympic team. The, the men's world national team was embarrassed in 2004. And so in 2008, they're like, we are coming back on the world stage. And they recruited all the best NBA players, including Kobe Bryant, who was arguably the best player in the NBA at that time. And one thing that stuck out to me about this is Kobe Bryant, once again, best basketball player in the world at this time in 2008. And in a show where they're enjoying their activities as a team. And so one night, I can't remember what happened, but all the guys went out and party. They're like, "Man, we're going to celebrate. I don't know if that's because they had a big win or something, right? They went out and celebrate. They were out until like the wee hours of the morning. And so they're getting back like 4:35, 5, 5.30 in the morning. And what do they see? Kobe Bryant. What's he doing? He's going to the gym to work on the basics, the fundamentals, and to keep practicing. Because he, he knew for them to win, for him to be the best player, to maintain being the best player, he was going to have to continue to practice to perfection. And so I, I look at that, man, that's a, that's a picture of us continuing our practices in Christ. We don't graduate beyond them. We don't get to the point, you know, I don't go, man, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I've got an MDiv. I've got an MA. I went to seminary. I've been over, You know, I don't know. It's like, go back to the basics. Allow God to work in you. Allow God to work these things in our lives. Number four, be effective and fruitful in your faith. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter moves from his appeal and his aim in wanting to believe to be productive in their faith. And notice, is one or the other Either you're progressing in your influence and godly character, or you're not. There's really no middle option. So either you're growing and looking more like Christ, or you're not growing and you're looking less like Christ. And that's true for every single one of us today. We see this in a couple other points. I'm gonna speed this up here. James 2.20. So do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Titus 3.14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So Peter's suggesting, if we don't unleash these qualities that have been given to us in Christ, then we are ineffective and unfruitful. That will be the result. Like, imagine in any other area of your life, you start a job, you start a career. Would you want to get into that career and then be ineffective and unfruitful? Like, no, you want to climb up the ladder. But once again, somehow it's like crept into the church, at least in, in our Western version of the church, where it's, it's almost okay to be ineffective and unfruitful right like, like studies show us that if you attend any form of church function once a month and like you're a regular and they're like almost like that's a good thing and i'm like i don't i think i see why the church collectively is ineffective and unfruitful and people wonder why is why is our nation continue to go backwards well i think it's because the church is ineffective and unfruitful i think that's why And the upcoming election is not going to change that us con- us pursuing christ Growing in the virtues of Christ, living out as the bride of Christ is what's going to change that. God showing up and working through his people. And so knowledge shows us that this is a particular kind of effectiveness and fruitfulness. But as you grow in these spiritual qualities, it will make your spiritual life effective. Number five. I'll finish up. Be sure and steadfast in your salvation. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you in an entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, based on the sobering realities of verses 3 through 9, God's gracious provision and our responsibility to bear His fruit, the risk of having to wonder if we're really saved, Peter pleads. For his beloved readers, he says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. So Peter starts in verse 10. He's looking all the way back to the place, remember, before the foundation of the world. We sing that last song, the idea of this firm foundation. Ephesians 1 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's right there, it's plain in Scripture, that we should be holy and blameless proportion. This was our place that we were given in Christ, this is how we were marked. And so that God's salvation is both elective and effective. It's elective, and we see this in verses 3 through 5, by creating faith in us, resourcing us for godliness, and giving us his divine nature, freeing us from sin. It's effective because at some point the gospel is preached, and we respond, and all the above is applied to our lives. So in this passage, it's not what God has done that Peter's actually emphasizing (laughs) It's what, what needs to be done in confirming our calling, that we have been given an active involvement and responsibility to confirm our calling. In other words, it's not we give our lives to Christ and then we sit back and just veg out on Netflix. God's at work. God's doing it, right? That's called an, an abuse of God's sovereignty. That's called an, an abuse of these things, right? And you go, well, God's doing it. Like, there's no need to do world missions. There's no reason to share the gospel with people. There's no reason to do these things, right? That's, that's an abuse of of the responsibility and involvement that God has given to us, that he's chosen to give us part of his plan of salvation for the world. So how do we do this? By continually growing in our knowledge, our practices that lead to our maturing. Then in verse 11, he looks all the way to the future. And so the question and challenge for us then as we wrap up is what do we do in between? He looks all the way back to our foundation. He looks all the way up to our future. We're living in the middle. What do we do? Be diligent to confirm our election. Think about if you're going to fly somewhere this afternoon. Do you want a confirmed ticket or a standby ticket? Confirm ticket, right? Standby, you may miss the flight. You may never get a flight. You want to have a confirmed ticket that is confirmed that you are getting on this plane. You're going from point A to point B, wherever it is that you are needing to go so we want to make sure that we are confirmed in our faith in God through Jesus Christ you'll never fall yes you will sin but never fall into apostasy and that's what he tells us there and why we gather weekly in part what we're doing now is to remind ourselves of the coming kingdom and to get through this present and suffering life because he's given us each other to remind ourselves of this so if you're, you're not a Christian, you're asking, how do I enter into this kingdom? It's by faith. That you see Jesus as your Savior and the only one who can bring you into this kingdom. As the king of the kingdom, and you repent of your sin and place your faith in him if any will happen. In church, we are to be continually be progressing in our faith. So let me pray for us. Ben's going to come back up and lead us in worship. We'll continue. Father God, we thank you for reminding us of our firm foundation that we have in you. God says that you called us before the foundation of the world, and honestly, we don't fully understand what that means. But God, may we rest in the tension of Scripture, trusting in you and your word. God, may we look to the future and see what has been given to us already through you. But may we be reminded that we live in the middle, that we live in the in-between. And already but not yet and god may we as your bride may we as your church continue to point one another towards you and god may we look more and more like you god sojourn church may never be the biggest church we may never be the coolest church or god we may never be numerous things but god may we be a church that the people in our city and those around us look and say that church looks like jesus God, they may not like everything we do. They may not like our convictions. They may be dead set against us. But God, may they not be able to say that we don't look like you. And that is a prayer of our heart. And that is the worship we give You now. In your name, David. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, SojournPDX.org.